It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Myanmar, the military coup of last year still looks solid. The opposition is locked up and protesters routinely beat down. But our correspondent finds growing dissent in the military rank and file and a network of help for those who want to desert. And I gotta tell you, I always liked the original cut of Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton more than the one by Elvis. But whose song is it when versions abound? the original author, the artist who did it best, who made it most popular, it's tricky. First up, though. Consumer price numbers in the euro area published today are worrying stuff, up by 5% year-on-year. Yesterday, Britain posted a rise of 5.4%, the highest in three decades. But there's a strange thing going on here. It's pretty much the same story for shoppers in New York and Toronto and Seoul. Inflation is up all over the developed world. A shared punch to the pocketbook that hasn't happened in more than half a century. Leaders want to be seen to be doing something, anything, to slow the price rises. But history shows that the solutions that come out of administrations can create more problems than they solve. There is a variety of things pushing inflation up around the world. Henry Kerb is our economics editor and first warned us on the show nearly a year ago that this situation was brewing. Where I'd start is America's very large economic stimulus. All those checks that were sent out to consumers got largely spent on goods, and this has bunged up the world's supply chain. So as a result, the prices of lots of goods have gone up around the world. At the same time, you have very tight labor markets in a number of places. And then you also have, and this is particular to Europe, really, a very large increase in energy prices, which often drives inflation higher temporarily, but has compounded these other factors as well. But this isn't the first time that we've seen this kind of coincidence of of inflation all around the world. No, it's not the first time this has happened. The iconic global inflationary takeoff happened in the 1970s, which was characterized by tight labor markets in the US as a result of stimulus that happened towards the end of the 1960s, then global oil price shocks, which pushed up the cost of fuel and energy around the world. And inflation was sufficiently high in the 1970s that it became a politically very important issue. It troubled American presidents from Nixon at the start of the decade. We are trying to do something that never has been done before to avoid a recession while we bring a major inflation to an end. Through to Reagan at the end. Now, we've just had two years of back-to-back double-digit inflation, 13.3% in 1979, 12.4% last year. The last time this happened, was in World War I. 
And it contributed in Britain to the election of Margaret Thatcher. Why are we Conservatives so opposed to inflation? Only because it puts up prices? No, because it destroys the value of people's savings, because it destroys jobs and with it people's hopes. And you can see echoes of that, if you like, today with inflation rising up the priority list of of politicians as it troubles the world's consumers and voters. And so if we have seen this before and seen it trouble administrations before, what's, what's different about this time, would you think? Well, a number of things. Firstly, the inflation rates are lower. We got into double digits in the 70s. No doubt some hawks would say that's where we're going this time, but that's not what most people expect to happen. I would say that the fundamental difference is that we know better how to fight inflation today than policymakers did in the 1970s. During the meetings on inflation, I listened carefully to many valuable suggestions. One of the presidents who tried to take on inflation in the 1970s, President Ford, was notorious for his whip inflation now campaign. There is only one point on which all advisors have agreed. We must whip inflation right now. Which tried to persuade people to keep their prices down with campaign buttons bearing that slogan. And nowadays, you know, that's viewed as ludicrous because it's viewed as the job of central banks to control inflation by raising interest rates. So the whipping inflation with, with badges and buttons is, is clearly a ridiculous idea now. What, what kinds of ideas are being put forward this time? Well, central banks are alert to the fact that they have to raise interest rates to fight inflation. There's no dereliction of duty there. But that hasn't stopped politicians from taking note of the price rises that are happening and feeling that it's incumbent on them to tell voters that they are doing something about it. So in America, uh, President Biden has emphasized his antitrust policies as anti-inflationary policies. So, for example, he wants to increase competition among slaughterhouses. The big companies are making massive profits. While their profits go up, the prices you see at the grocery stores go up commensurate. The prices farmers receive for the products they are bringing to market go down. This reflects the market being distorted by lack of competition. Uh, Which he blames for a 16% rise in meat prices in the year to November. And he's also called for investigations into the energy and shipping industries, uh, which have been sources of price uh, rises because of recent bottlenecks and shortages. So a focus then on on antitrust and, and regulation in America. What about in Europe? In Europe, the focus has been on the price of energy because of the natural gas shortage, which has been the primary driver of inflation there. So you have a lot of governments considering subsidies for energy bills uh, or reduced taxes on energy bills. And in Britain recently, we've had this suggestion that the government might invent a sort of market stabilisation mechanism for uh, energy prices, whereby it shields consumers from high prices when uh, natural gas prices are high as they are today. And then when natural gas prices are, are low, it sort of recoups that money from the energy companies and tries to smooth out fluctuations in the price. And, and what's your view on, on these antitrust pushes taking on slaughterhouses and energy providers and so on? Are these policies likely to, to help, to work? On antitrust, 
there may be merit in looking into slaughterhouses or indeed other concentrated industries in America. But there's a difference between asking whether the policy is desirable and whether it's a good inflation-fighting strategy. To say that inflation is explained by falling levels of competition in the economy, you'd have to believe that the economy has become less competitive over the period in which inflation has risen, i.e. very recently. And I don't think that's plausible. So I think it's not the right tool to fight inflation. For energy prices, I think in Europe, governments are in danger of subsidising into a shortage, which is not something any economist would recommend. You know, ultimately, high prices have to be allowed to do their work of constraining demand. Or if you shield people from the high prices, then you can just expect the subsidies to push up the prices even more. And generally, if you were going to try and protect people's incomes from high energy prices, it would be better to not shield them from the price mechanism, but support their incomes directly through welfare systems. So I would say that the attempts to shield consumers from higher energy prices are sort of undesirable on any grounds. But what you have said is the inflation-busting mechanism uh, that would work here lies with the central banks. Why is it that administrations like those in America and Europe are are kind of meddling at the margins in this way if if it really is the job of central banks to solve it? I think the issue for politicians is that rapidly rising prices are both very noticeable and very unpopular. So in America, despite the fact that the economy is definitely in better shape than it was when the pandemic struck in the spring of 2020, consumer confidence is actually lower because high inflation has made the public doubt the strength of the economy. So people really dislike inflation. They punish incumbent politicians for inflation. So there is a sense in which politicians feel they have to respond. And that's what former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers told our sister podcast, The World Ahead, this week. I think it's terribly important to the prospects for reasonable and sound governance that government show its basic competence by keeping inflation under control. And on that show, you discussed what the the rest of the year will will look like economically, right? Yes, we looked at the inflation outlook and we also discussed the future of decentralized finance and central bank digital currencies. I will give it a listen. Henry, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In one view of the situation in Myanmar, the military has an unassailable upper hand. Since the overthrow of the democratically elected government last February, it's locked up Aung San Suu Kyi, the government's de facto leader. And last week, the military charged her with five more trumped-up counts of corruption. The ruling junta is still viciously cracking down on anti-government protests, raising villages, killing with impunity. But in another view, that grip on the country is only held together by the junta's soldiers on the ground. And those soldiers are increasingly disillusioned. 
I spoke to a sergeant in the Burmese military, the Tatmadaw, who told me that he'd been dissatisfied with his life in the army for years. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent and is based in Singapore. Um, okay, <clears throat> so for my first question, yes. He didn't want me to reveal his name or even his voice because he was afraid that he would be identified by the military. Can you describe the things that you that you saw that made you lose trust in the Tatmadaw? You know, long before the coup, the army was a notoriously horrible place for soldiers. He said the officers treated rank and file like their servants. They were sent out to buy whiskey and cigarettes for them. And if soldiers like the sergeant I spoke to refused, he said that they'd get beaten or they'd be locked in a cell. They lived in fear. In Myanmar, the armed forces have seized power and detained the country's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. Troops are patrolling in force along with a one-year state of emergency. So when the coup happened, he was deeply shocked. And when a protest movement emerged, he thought that there would be a peaceful end to that resistance. But then the army started killing demonstrators. And he quickly realized that the army wasn't just hated by bits and pieces of society. It was now hated by the whole country. And he hated it too. So what did he do? He was petrified about leaving the army. But he told me that as he left the base, he felt like he was letting go of a burden that he'd been shouldering for a very long time. When and why did you decide to leave the Tatmadaw to defect, I mean? So last July, uh, he, his wife, and their daughter got permission to leave the base in order to visit relatives, or so they said. On the, on the morning of their departure, they left the base in a car that he had rented. And as I traveled from city to city en route to their final destination, he switched cars multiple times to ensure that they weren't being followed by anyone. And they eventually found their way to safety in rebel territory. Well, what does that look like? What happens to defectors when they, when they get out? Once they make their way to rebel territory, they'll get assistance from a couple of organizations that have sprung up to help soldiers like this sergeant. And these organizations work hand in hand with rebel groups and politicians who were deposed in the coup and have since formed a shadow government. So I learned a little bit about their tactics in an interview with a man called Nituta. He's a former army captain who helped found an organization called People Soldiers to help soldiers flee. Okay. Uh, I spoke to him with the help of a translator. Okay, let's say it this way. We are here to encourage the uh, member of the security forces to go against the military quanta. Soldiers uh, make contact uh, with these organizations uh, through an encrypted messaging app. So, in brief, three things they are doing. Number one is to change the ideology of the soldier. Volunteers at these organizations who are usually former soldiers themselves, they urge them just to think about how future generations of Burmese will think about them if they remain in the army. The second one is helping the soldier in defending. 
they get instructions from these organizations on where to go, how to locate liberated territory, and they receive help getting there. The third one is helping their family member and the soldier with their living after their diffusion and desertion. Once they arrive, they're provided with food, housing, a stipend. They also get medical attention. And all of that is funded by the shadow government and also by donations from the public. I asked him how many soldiers have defected from the Tatmada. Oh, Charlie, what uh, Captain Yidutap answered to your question was, we have more than 2,000 defectors so far. Let's say if we have over 10,000 defectors, that would be the milestone, and the crap in the military would be obvious. The defection we are seeing these days was the tip of the iceberg. So the aim here is for something like 10,000 defections. What, what kind of impact do you think that would have? So some analysts point out that 10,000 defections is not actually that many when you consider that the military is thought to be comprised of maybe 300,000 soldiers. The thing about that number, the 300,000 soldiers, is it's actually pretty misleading. Infantry are very poorly trained, and the ratio of combat troops to support personnel is really very low, which means that the military is actually not a terribly effective fighting force. But you know what the captain was really saying is that should as many as 10,000 soldiers defect from the army, that would deal a really significant psychological blow to the soldiers who remain. And it's important to point out that for every soldier that defects, many more simply desert. And what do you make of, of that assertion that, that really not a whole lot of work has to be done here to, to undermine the Tatmadaw critically? I think it's unlikely you're going to see the number of defections necessary to really cripple the Tatmadaw. Defectors I've spoken to say that a lot of soldiers who remain within the Tatmadaw desperately want to leave, but they're just too scared. You know, the punishment if you're caught trying to escape is very likely death. The sergeant told me that soldiers are effectively imprisoned on their base. Their social media activity is monitored and sometimes their phones are confiscated. So they don't always really have a clear idea of what's happening outside of their base. So some of them wouldn't know how to go about defecting even if they wanted to. But clearly the captain thinks that it's it's worth persisting here. So even though the defection program is in no way going to kneecap the Tatmadaw, the generals are still likely to be very worried. The military is struggling to recruit, and morale, according to defectors, is exceedingly low. So I think the Tatmadaw can seem like this leviathan, this enormously powerful institution. But with every passing day, as soldiers one by one flee from it, it may come to seem less fearsome, and may come to be less effective. At least that's what the resistance hopes. Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. 
Power is one of the most highly regarded artists on the American indie rock scene. Best known for somber and powerful songs like Lived in Bars. She's just released her 11th album, which is called Covers, and it's made up of previously recorded songs. David Bennon writes about music for The Economist. It includes covers of tracks like Billie Holiday's I'll Be Seeing You. And it's the third such covers album she's released. By doing so, she may have been slowly changing the perception of covers for music obsessives. There's something in the phrase cover version that functions as an implicit warning label. The caveat that this music may be intrinsically less authentic than the original. But what this really comes down to is a question of authenticity. The idea of authenticity in covers is a lot more complex than it seems. Uh, the cover version really is a misunderstood form. Before the early 60s, there was a distinct division of labour. Writers wrote and singers sang. Competing versions of the same songs would jockey for position in the charts. In the USA, the songwriting industry was nicknamed Tin Pan Alley, after the Manhattan street where it first flourished. Tin Pan Alley's early fortune lay in sheet music. A popular song could sell in the millions. The idea that a song could belong to anybody other than in a strictly technical licensing sense had little traction. It was Bob Dylan, along with the Beatles, who in the early 1960s established, perhaps inadvertently, the notion that the writer and the artist not only could be, but should be, one and the same. For example, when you listen to a song such as The Times They Are A-Changing, the writer and the artist are so intently focused in that one song that it's hard to imagine them being different. This does raise the question, what exactly constitutes an original? Does one cover a songwriter or a recording? For example, Cat Power's new album features a version of These Days, a song which was written by Jackson Brown and which was first recorded by Nico in 1967. Mr. Brown didn't release his own version until 1973, and his version bore a notable resemblance to a country rock arrangement issued by Greg Ullman earlier that year. Well, I've been out walking. I don't do that much talking. Whereas Cat Power's version steers much closer to the Nico version. So who is Cat Power covering, exactly? Who does the song belong to? You could argue that if a song belongs to anybody, it belongs to whoever delivers it most memorably. Take the case of Elvis Presley, who was above all an interpreter of songs and a superb one. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Hound dog, blue suede shoes, love me tender, suspicious minds. They've long been thought of as... Elvis songs, yet yeah, they're all cover versions. Hound Dog, for example, was first performed by Big Mama Thornton. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. No 
If we go back to Bob Dylan, a lot of people don't realise that All Along the Watchtower by the Jimi Hendrix experience is in fact a cover of a Dylan song. Interestingly, when Dylan performed that song live in the 1970s, his live version was much closer to the Jimi Hendrix version than to his original rather subdued folk pop version. He was effectively covering a cover of his own song. When Cat Power released her first album of cover versions over 20 years ago, it included a version of Lou Reed's I Found a Reason. has become, certainly if not the definitive version, then a very strong and memorable one. And that's all a really good cover version needs to do, is to give a song another life. A life that's as valid as anything that went before. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.